Book Fifth, Chapter Twelve of Ben Hur by Lew Wallace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twelve. The circus at Antioch stood on the south bank of the river, nearly opposite the island, differing in no respect from the plan of such buildings in general. In the purest sense, the games were a gift to the public. Consequently, everybody was free to attend, and, vast as the holding capacity of the structure was, so fearful were the people, on this occasion, lest there should not be room for them, that, early the day before the opening of the exhibition, they took up all the vacant spaces in the vicinity, where the temporary shelter suggested an army in waiting. At midnight the entrances were thrown wide, and the rabble, surging in, occupied the quarters assigned to them, from which nothing less than an earthquake or an army with spears could have dislodged them. They dozed the night away on the benches, and breakfasted there, and there the clothes of the exercises found them, patient and sight-hungry as in the beginning. The better people, their seats secured, began moving towards the circus, about the first hour of the morning, the noble and very rich among them distinguished by litters and retinues of liveried servants. By the second hour the efflux from the city was a stream unbroken and innumerable. Exactly as the gnomon of the official dial-up in the citadel pointed on the second hour half gone, the legion, in full panoply and with all its standards on exhibit, descended from Mount Sulpius, and when the rear of the last cohort disappeared in the bridge, Antioch was literally abandoned. Not that the circus could hold the multitude, but that the multitude was gone out to it nevertheless. A great concourse on the river shore witnessed the consul come over from the island in a barge of state. As the great man landed and was received by the legion, the martial show for one brief moment transcended the attraction of the circus. At the third hour the audience, if such it may be termed, was assembled. At last a flourish of trumpets called for silence, and instantly the gaze of over a hundred thousand persons was directed towards a pile forming the eastern section of the building. There was a basement first, broken in the middle by a broad arched passage, called the Porta Palme, over which, on an elevated tribunal magnificently decorated with insignia and legionary standards, the consul sat in the place of honour. On both sides of the passage the basement was divided into stalls termed carceres, each protected in front by massive gates swung to statuesque pilasters. Over the stalls next was the cornice crowned low by a balustrade, back of which the seats arose in theatre arrangement, all occupied by a throng of dignitaries superbly attired. The pile extended the width of the circus and was flanked on both sides by towers which, besides helping the architects give grace to their work, served the valeria, or purple awnings, stretched between them so as to throw the whole quarter in a shade that became exceedingly grateful as the day advanced. This structure, it is now thought, can be made useful in helping the reader to a sufficient understanding of the arrangement of the rest of the interior of the circus. He has only to fancy himself seated on the tribunal with the consul, facing to the west, where everything is under his eye. On the right and left, if he will look, he will see the main entrances, very ample and guarded by gates hinged to the towers. Directly below him is the arena, a level plain of considerable extent, covered with fine white sand. There are all the trials will take place except the running. Looking across the sanded arena, westwardly still, there is a pedestal of marble supporting three low conical pillars of grey stone, 
Much carven. Many and I will hunt for those pillars before the day is done, for they are the first goal, and mark the beginning and end of the race course. Behind the pedestal, leaving a passageway and space for the altar, commences a wall ten or twelve feet in breadth and five or six in height, extending thence exactly two hundred yards, or one Olympic stadium. At the farther or westward extremity of the wall there is another pedestal, surmounted with pillars which mark the second goal. The racers will enter the course on the right of the first goal, and keep the wall all the time to their left. The beginning and ending points of the contest lie, consequently, directly in front of the consul, across the arena, and for that reason his seat was admittedly the most desirable in the circus. Now if the reader, who is still supposed to be seated on the consular tribunal over the Porta Pompey, will look up from the grand arrangement of the interior, the first point to attract his notice will be the marking of the outer boundary line of the course, that is, a plain-faced, solid wall, fifteen or twenty feet in height, with a balustrade on its cope, like that over the carceres, or stalls, in the east. This balcony, if followed round the course, will be found broken in three places to allow passages of exit and entrance, two in the north and one in the west, the latter very ornate and called the Gate of Triumph, because, when it is all over, the victors will pass out that way, crowned, and with triumphal escort and ceremonies. At the west end the balcony encloses the course in the form of half a circle, and is made to uphold two great galleries. Directly behind the balustrade on the coping of the balcony is the first seat, from which ascend the succeeding benches, each higher than the one in front of it, giving to view a spectacle of surpassing interest, the spectacle of a vast space, ruddy and glistening with human faces, and rich with vari-coloured costumes. The commonalty occupy quarters over in the west, beginning at the point of termination of an awning, stretched, it would seem, for the accommodation of the better classes exclusively. Having thus the whole interior of the circus under view at the moment of the sounding of the trumpets, let the reader next imagine the multitude seated and sunk to sudden silence, and motionless in its intensity of interest. Out of the Porta Pompey over in the east rises a sound mixed of voices and instruments harmonized. Presently forth issues the chorus of the procession with which the celebration begins, the editor and civic authorities of the city, givers of the games, follow in robes and garlands, then the gods, some on platforms borne by men, others in great four-wheel carriages gorgeously decorated. Next them, again, the contestants of the day, each in costume exactly as he will run, wrestle, leap, box, or drive. Slowly crossing the arena, the procession proceeds to make circuit of the course. The display is beautiful and imposing. Approval runs before it in a shout, as the water rises and swells in front of a boat in motion. If the dumb-figured gods make no sign of appreciation of the welcome, the editor and his associates are not so backward. The reception of the athletes is even more demonstrative, for there is not a man in the assemblage who has not something in wager upon them, though but a mite or farthing. And it is noticeable, as the classes move by, that the favorites among them are speedily singled out. Either their names are loudest in the uproar, or they are more profusely showered with wreaths and garlands tossed to them from the balcony. If there is a question as to the popularity with the public of the several games, it is now put to rest. To the splendor of the chariots and the super-excellent beauty of the horses, the charioteers add the personality necessary to perfect the charm of their display. 
Their tunics, short, sleeveless, and of the finest woolen texture, are of the assigned colors. A horseman accompanies each one of them except Ben-Hur, who, for some reason, probably distrust, has chosen to go alone. So, too, they are all helmeted but him. As they approach, the spectators stand upon the benches, and there is a sensible deepening of the clamor, in which a sharp listener may detect the shrill piping of women and children. At the same time, things rosy, flying from the balcony, thicken into a storm, and striking the men drop into chariot beds, which are threatened with filling to the tops. Even the horses have a share in the ovation, nor may it be said that they are less conscious than their masters of the honors they receive. Very soon, as with the other contestants, it is made apparent that some of the drivers are more in favor than the others, and then the discovery follows that nearly every individual on the benches, women and children as well as men, wears a color, most frequently a ribbon upon the breast or in the hair. Now it is green, now yellow, now blue, but, searching the great body carefully, it is manifest that there is a preponderance of white and scarlet and gold. In a modern assemblage called together as this one is, particularly where there are sums at hazard upon the race, a preference would be decided by the qualities or performance of the horses. Here, however, nationality was the rule. If the Byzantine and Sidonian found small support, it was because their cities were scarcely represented on the beaches. On their side, the Greeks, though very numerous, were divided between the Corinthian and the Athenian, leaving but a scant showing of green and yellow. Masala's scarlet and gold would have been but little better had not the citizens of Antioch, proverbially a race of courtiers, joined the Romans by adopting the color of their favorite. There were left, then, the country people, or Assyrians, the Jews, and the Arabs, and they, from faith in the blood of the sheik's four, blent largely with the hate of the Romans, whom they desired, above all things, to see beaten and humbled, mounted the white, making the most noisy, and probably the most numerous, faction of all. As the charioteers move on in the circuit, the excitement increases at the second goal, where, especially in the galleries, the white is the ruling color, the people exhaust their flowers and rive the air with screams. Masala! Masala! Ben-Hur! Ben-Hur! Such are the cries. Upon the passage of the procession, the factionists take their seats and resume conversation. Ah, by Bacchus! Was he not handsome? exclaims a woman, whose Romanism is betrayed by the colors flying in her hair. And how splendid his chariot! replies a neighbor, of the same proclivities. It is all ivory and gold. Jupiter grant he wins. The notes on the bench behind them were entirely different. A hundred shekels on the Jew! The voice is high and shrill. Nay, be thou not rash, whispers the moderating friend to the speaker. The children of Jacob are not much given to Gentile sports, which are too often accursed in the sight of the Lord. True, but saw you ever one more cool and assured? And what an arm he has! And what horses? says a third. And for that, a fourth one adds, They say he has all the tricks of the Romans. A woman completes the eulogium. Yes, and he is even handsomer than the Roman. Thus encouraged, the enthusiast shrieks again. A hundred shekels on the Jew! Thou fool! answers an Antiochian, from a bench well forward on the balcony. Knowest thou not there are fifty talents laid against him, six to one, on Masella? Put up thy shekels, lest Abraham rise and smite thee. <laughs> thou ass of Antioch, cease thy bray. Knowest thou not it was Masella betting on himself? Such the reply. 
and so ran the controversy, not always good-natured. When at length the march was ended and the Porta Pompey received back the procession, Ben-Hur knew he had his prayer. The eyes of the East were upon his contest with Masala. End of chapter 12